0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Rittman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. So, what would you say is one of your greatest possessions? Uh, Most people, you know, if somebody off the street came up to you and said that, asked you that question, it might be a different answer than if I asked it to you. But if you were out on the street and somebody asked you that, somebody might say, well, my family would be, that would be my greatest possession. And that's a great one. Maybe on down the line, somebody might talk about some of their experiences, their memories. I've always said that I'm not someone who collects a lot of things like money, but I collect a lot of experiences. I I enjoy uh, different experiences. Some might say, well, they're they're goods, they're properties, they're heirlooms, or things like that. Um, The Apostle John would suggest, and and being in a church, you probably already figured this out, that uh, if somebody were to ask him, what's your greatest possession? He would have said, my greatest possession is eternal life that I am gonna be with Christ forever. In fact, eternal life is a favorite topic to John. Uh, In his writings, at least 15 times, he, he mentions eternal life. And just so you don't think that's a small number, on another eight times, he uses the phrase everlasting life. So it's big to him, he talks about it a lot. And that's kind of interesting because John was there on the Mount of Olives, when Jesus told his disciples that I'm going to make you witnesses to me throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other most parts of the world. And then eventually Jesus ascended into heaven. And John heard that statement about you're going to be witnesses everywhere for me. And not only did he hear it, he did it. Uh, It was a proof of his life that uh, he loved Christ and he lived for Him and talked about Him a lot. So we're going to look at First uh, John chapter five, and um, really we're going to hit some verses today. I'm going to go through one through three. I'm going to read to you right now, and it says, "Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves His child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God." By loving God and carrying out his commands, this is love for God to obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. So. Received by believing. Um, when you're born of God, you're born through love and in love. Uh, you will love the father because he gave you life. You're going to love the son because he gave his life for you. And you should love his children because you're in the same family as they are. So love is a big subject. Uh, One of our older commentary people, uh, and probably a Brit at that, made this comment about the apostle John and the subject of love. I liked it. The apostle seems quite unable to get away from the subject of love. I just thought that was a great way to say it, and it's true. In First John chapter two verse ten, chapter three eleven, chapter three fourteen, three eighteen, four seven, he starts going into the subject of love, and he just can't stop and get away from it. Which is really a fascinating thought because when John first came to Jesus, I don't think he was known for being a loving, touchy feely kind of guy. In fact, in um, In Mark chapter 3, it tells us that um, when Jesus was appointing his apostles, he mentioned James and John and called them the sons of thunder. (laughs) They were just, yeah, they were guys. They were guys. That's what they were. And uh, and they were known for that. They were probably... um, you know, a lightning bolt about ready to strike. And then in Mark chapter 9, that was interesting. They were out wandering around and they came upon some guy, somebody they didn't know, who was casting demons out of people in the name of Jesus. And they said, you got to stop this. Stop. Don't do this. You're not one of us apostles. You don't have any right to be doing this. Then they went back and told Jesus. And Jesus said to them, don't do that. That's not right. If they're doing it in my name and they're doing my work, then it's it's valid. Um, Then he had other things to say there, too. But just the emotion of them, it's like they come upon a guy doing the right stuff. And they're like, stop, stop. You're not one of us. Doesn't sound like the most loving person. This is the one I really like. In Luke chapter nine, they were traveling and they were passing through a village in Samaria. And they wanted to refresh and eat and stay there. But the Samaritans wouldn't let them stay because their end journey was going to go to Jerusalem. And of course, you know, the Samaritans and the Jews were not friendly people with each other. And so they said, no, you can't stay here. We're not giving you food. We're not letting you rest. You can't say, get out of here. And John turns to Jesus and says, you want me to call down fire from heaven? I mean, we can torch this town. It would really be cool. And... It's like, what's the love in that? <laughs> Jesus, of course, kind of said no. And, and the other thing I wondered about that is like, didn't John realize that Jesus could have done that? I mean, Jesus could have done that. He could have called fire down if you want to destroy him. John, what, where are you coming off at? When you come to the later part in John's life and you see the things that he's writing and how he's writing, you know that he's been transformed by love he's been transformed by the love of god he's been transformed by the love of christ he's been transformed by his love for christ and all his lifelong experiences he was a totally different human being than he was when he first met jesus What an amazing thing. So he's going to write about love. Of course, he's going to write about love over and over and over again. He's going to write about love. And some people can think, hasn't it all been said before? I mean, what else can you add to this? But can you really say it too often? And I'm going to suggest not because at this point in life, uh, I believe that John was the pastor. At the church in Ephesus, man, that was a that was a great church. They were really rocking and rolling and doing good stuff for Jesus and all kinds of great people, godly Christian forefathers were part of that church in Ephesus. But remember when Jesus uh, met John on the island of Patmos? Maybe five, no more than ten years after this, uh, after he wrote this. And Jesus started telling him a of, of revelation of what's to come. And he starts talking to about seven different churches. And the first church he mentions is the church in Ephesus. Now, if you remember your scriptures, that all seven of those churches, Jesus had a commendation. And for most of them, he had a condemnation as well. There was something wrong, faulty with them, Except for Philadelphia, of course. But uh, all the others had something wrong. And um, when it came to the church of Ephesus, what did he tell them that they're lacking was? They lost their first love. <laughs> Here's John preaching over and over and over again about love. And I'm sitting here thinking, how do I say this any other way? I mean, how often do you have to say this? And... They lost it. Just a handful of years later, they they lost it. Not that they didn't do great things; they did tremendous things. They were very doctrinal. They knew. Uh, they caught the message of the Gnostics, and they were handling that great. But they just kind of lost that fervor that they had for Jesus. John repeated it over and over again. It made me think about the uh, the young pastor who was called to a church and started off. And his first message, he spoke there, it was great. He, he told the people about how to do what is right and not do what is wrong. And it was good. And the people all slapped his back and shook his hand when it was over. And and then the next Sunday came around, he got up and he preached the same exact message. And everybody kind of looked at each other and thought, well, what's going on here? You know, And uh, maybe he got confused or something. And But they were mumbled among themselves, no big deal. Then the third week comes, and he preaches the same exact message, how to do what's right, not to do what's wrong. And uh, now the people were talking, and they went to one of the elders and said, you need to say something to him. So by the end of the week, um, the elder goes and speaks to this pastor, and he said, you know, we, we like you a lot. We love your family, wonderful people. Very glad to have you here with us we're just kind of concerned. You've been here three Sundays and you preach the same exact sermon every single Sunday. And then he said, oh, yeah, I'm going to keep doing it until you start practicing it, (laughs) doing what's right and not doing what's wrong. Maybe that's what John was thinking. Maybe he just knows how easy it is for us to get self-consumed and not be reaching out to other people. And he's just saying, I know I told you before, love But I need to tell you it again, love. We had a member of our church recently, no names, please, but they're not with us any longer. And when he would get dropped off by a family member and then picked up afterwards, every Sunday, his family member would say, well, what did Pastor Bud speak about? Love. (laughs) Every week. Um, I think that was true, although I don't know if it was or not, but I like to think so. Thank God. For the reminders to love, so vitally important. John again stresses the relationship between love and belief; they're interconnected. Um, he says that there's our love for God is the same as obeying the commands. Back in John chapter fourteen, verses fifteen to twenty-one, Jesus made comments like, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." And it's interrelated. If you know and you believe and you love, you're going to do, you're going to do what I want. One of the two great commandments that Jesus summarized was to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. So therefore, when we truly love God, we know that we should be loving others as well. So I wrote, uh, so I wrote up a little quote that, um, I, this probably isn't the best place for it, but it's cute. Um, your first birth made you a sinner and a loser. We're all born into sin, and um, and that's been bad. But your second birth made you a winner and a cruiser. I don't know what a cruiser is. I needed something to rhyme, that's all. And so I wrote that. But um, it is true that, you know, we were born in sin, and we lived in sin and we stayed in sin until we were born from above, born by Christ, born to know and love other people. And um, and now we're cruising, right? We're on cruise control with Jesus. <clears throat> I want to read to you um, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. It says, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So we're given our grace so that we can be overcomers and have victory in this life. Not you, but some people who claim to be believers are really spiritual chameleons. And um, they have their ups and downs because of that. Because mostly what they're trying to do is to blend in to the the colors around them. They're trying to be just like everybody else. I want Christ and I want all that he has to offer to me, but I sure want to be like everybody else in the world because I don't want to be picked on or I don't want to be looked at different. I want to be cool and accepted. And so I try to be like everybody else, spiritual chameleons. I would suggest rather, why don't you just have faith in God? Why don't you just trust God? God can meet the ordinary, unexciting, humdrum affairs of our life just as much as he can take care of the big issues that hit us also. In verse 1, it says that the person who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And here in verses 4 and 5, it says the person who believes that Jesus is the Christ overcomes the world. In fact, John emphasizes this by saying overcomes three times in this text. The world tries to entice you. Satan wants to seduce you. But Christ will give you victory if you just trust him. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus told us that I have overcome the world. And he has. He has been victorious over it. And we will be too as long as we stay in him. The overcomer is the person who believes that Jesus is the son of God. So belief in the incarnation, the the coming of Christ to earth and him giving his life and dying for us and raising from the dead, that belief is what gives us a new birth. And a new birth gives us the ability to keep his commands. But that all includes the directive of loving one another. Oh, that went way too fast. Sorry about that. Bishop Gore, no relation to Al, I don't think, said, the switch of faith turns on the power to overcome. You throw that switch in your heart of faith in Christ and that turns on. It lets that power flow through you in order to overcome the things of this world. And the kind of things you overcome are like sinful habits and temptations, circumstances and depressing feelings, and even the dominant self of you. Sometimes, well, maybe all the time, you're your own worst enemy. <laughs> you can be. Self-consumed, selfish things, and yet in Christ we can have victory over all of that. In verses six through eight, it's going to tell us a little bit about um, doing all this through the faith in Christ. It says, This is the one who came by water and blood Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now, I know depending on the translation you have, you might have a little bit of extra added in there that's not found in earlier manuscripts. Don't worry about that. Three witnesses, he says. It's a little bit confusing. What does water and blood have to do with being a witness. Well, through Christ's death and and the foundation of that faith, which is built on Christ's death, and it's a trustworthy testimony, he mentions water and the blood. Fascinating. There's four views as to what is meant by the water, and lucky you today, I'm only going to give you the right one Okay, the other three have some biblical sense and it makes sense, but they just don't fit this context very well, so why confuse us? He's talking about the baptism of Christ. It's what David read for us in that beautiful setting and wearing a t-shirt and warm and fuzzy. Um, It's the public ministry starter of Jesus. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and remember, John didn't want to do it. John kept saying to him, You know, I'm not worthy to do this. But Jesus insisted. John's baptism was a baptism to repentance from sins. Did Jesus, don't answer this out loud, but the answer is no. But did Jesus need to be repentant of sin? No, no. He never sinned. So why did he have to be baptized by John the Baptist? We don't know all the answers on that. But this was an initiation of a new ministry that Jesus was now going public with. Uh, He wanted to identify himself with the human race. He was associated with us. It's not a baptism of repentance, but he never sinned. It's a baptism of identification and association and starting a public ministry. Now, remember, we've been telling you about those nasty Gnostics, and they... um, They had the view that at the baptism, when the dove descended upon Jesus, that that was the Messiah Christ coming on him and that it took off of Jesus. Jesus was on the cross and said into your hands, I commit my spirit. So they think that Jesus is just a normal guy like anybody else who had this special um, compensation come upon him. For those three years and it sure took off before the worst stuff happened on the crucifixion that's not good that's wrong Uh, it's it's doesn't help you or me in any way because then God did not die for our sins some human being died and and that doesn't do you and I any good some people like a bloodless gospel Some people don't want to talk about the crucifixion and the the death and and the sins. Um, They don't like that. And you can hear them on TV. There's preachers that will come on and they'll tell you that I don't preach about that. I just want to say the good positive things. Uh, Made me think about a guy named Cain, who um, God had asked to give some offerings and some sacrifices and He decided he took some really good stuff that he had planted and grown and and brought it. It was probably rich and delicious and beautiful and maybe valuable, but it wasn't what God wanted. And so often we as people try to tell God what is right and what is wrong. And uh, and we miss it. We know better than God does. But God told us in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, There's no remission for sin. We have to have the cross of Jesus Christ. It must have happened. It must have paid for our sins and the resurrection to give us victory over death. So the water baptism testified that he was God because the Spirit of God descended upon him and the voice out of heaven said, this is my son whom I love and am pleased with. So you had in that one scene, you had Father, the, God the Father in heaven speaking. You had God the Son in a water being baptized and God the Holy Spirit um, descending upon him and commissioning him for this new public ministry. The Spirit bears witness, and that witness is true. I think the verse that we have, oh, that's, I didn't know I had that up there. Um, John 15 Says, when the counselor comes, whom will I send to you from the Father? The Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. This is whom the Father sends to us to testify about Christ. It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is a witness and a testifier that Jesus is who he said he is. In John chapter 1, when um, John the Baptist first met, Jesus, in a public setting, uh, he declared him the Lamb of God and called him the Son of God. So here in this text, it tells us that there are three unto one, three witnesses of one purpose, of one goal. You have the witness of the baptism, the witness of the cross, where Christ gave his blood and died for us as God, and rose from the dead. And you have the witness of the Holy Spirit coming alongside as well to tell us that that is absolutely a valid witness. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, uh, it was given to Israel about legal matters that you had to have three witnesses to establish a testimony. That's why it comes this way to us. We have some real advantages as believers. We have the work of Christ. We know what he's done for us. We have the word of God, and we have the witness of the Holy Spirit. The work of Christ is the cross. His life lived, of course, but the cross and the empty tomb, the word of God, the, the Bible, that we have in a perfect, beautiful, complete, accurate form so that we can know everything we need to know about living this life spiritually well and and spending eternity and being prepared for that with Christ. And then we have the witness of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us and comes upon us as God. So I want to read to you verses 9 through 12 and talk about that divine testimony. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because... It's the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life, and he who does not have the son of god does not have life so there's this testimony and a testimony is true and it's god's testimony and god is telling us this and god is greater than anyone else or anything else we have i think in your outline i have a couple of notes there about uh, God knows all things, and I just referenced John 3, but there's a lot of passages of Scripture, Psalms 119, Psalm 139, just a lot of places where it tells us that God is all-knowing, omniscient. He knows everything, <clears throat> and he's the God of truth. Psalm 31, Psalm 100, Psalm 146, and you can go on and on. that tells that this is God's truth that he communicates to us. And in Titus 1 and 2 is a great passage because it tells us something God cannot do. God cannot lie and he would not lie. And so the argument that John has here is, so if you're willing to receive in a court of law the testimony of a human being, would you also think about receiving the testimony of God himself, isn't that greater than three or three million human beings' testimony? Yes. And yet he accused them of making God out to be a liar if they don't uh, accept it. He did the same thing in chapter 1, verse 10, when people were denying that whole process of sin in their lives. And he said, you're making God to be a liar. If you say that you don't sin, then you're calling God a liar. Now he's saying, if you don't accept the testimony of Christ and the testimony of God, then you're making God to be a liar. I read in one of my commentaries a story about Uh, It happened a long time ago. It was probably in at least the 60s, maybe even earlier than that. Um, And a soldier was talking to another soldier and was talking to him about Christ and was trying to get him to understand that you need to accept Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. And the second soldier just said this, I just cannot face the cost of becoming a Christian a lot of people have thought that in the past. I don't want to give this up, or I don't want to start doing that. It's just too much. I cannot face the cost of becoming a Christian. Well, right about that moment, an officer came walking by, and he stopped and he said to that second soldier, have you ever faced the cost of not becoming a Christian? <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, think about that. The cost is eternity. Pretty serious stuff. We've been given a gift in Christ it's a lasting gift it's an eternal gift most of the time when you get a gift whether it's your birthday or anniversary or Christmas or Easter or whatever it is when you get a gift usually that gift is going to wear out or go out of style um, something's going to happen that it's not going to last very long and even if it is something that's like an heirloom kind of thing uh, and it may last a long time but it's not going to last forever It's going to fade away. But eternal life doesn't wear out and it doesn't go out of style. And there's two conditions for eternal life. One is repentance and the other is faith. Eternal life is a gift that's been given to us by God through Christ. And all we need to do is to acknowledge Repent from our sins and accept him with faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for the wonderful gift that we can have in Christ, eternal, everlasting life. And if I understand scripture, that begins the moment that you accept Jesus as Savior. It's not something that's postponed until after death, but it's a life that can be abundant and full of joy today. Full of love and and a life that we would enjoy forever with you. Thank you so much for that gift. Thank you for our Savior Jesus and the price he paid, enormous price. And we just are are so grateful for your love to us. In fact, in chapter 4, it tells us that you loved us first. We didn't love you first. You, You brought us, you bought us, and then you brought us to yourself. Thank you so much for that gift of eternal life. May we respond to you, Lord. May we come to you in faith. May we lean upon you and trust the Spirit of God to keep us close. May we honor you with our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us At ritman gbc at aol.com.